This is the Swampscott Library's Librarians by the Sea podcast, where we share our love of a good book with you. I'm your host, Julie Travers. Today on the podcast, I have an interview with journalist Ian Thompson. For the last three decades, he has been writing about sports in America and around the world for the Boston Globe, the National Sports Daily, the International Herald Tribune, Sports Illustrated, and NBA.com. Ian now works as a writer at Northeastern University's news outlet and lives in Swampscott. On today's episode, we discuss his background in sports journalism, his book, which is titled The Soul of Basketball, The Epic Showdown, between LeBron, Kobe, Doc, and Dirk that saved the NBA, and the future of the NBA given our current situation. Enjoy. Hello. Hi, Julie. Yes. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for uh, uh, doing this. I appreciate it. Oh no. Yeah. And I just finished your book um, like twenty minutes ago. So. That oh, was that was nice of you. Yeah, of course. I. Oh. Um, so as a disclosure, I'm not, I don't follow basketball, but I, I really like the book. I thought it was mm. exciting. That's, I appreciate that. And a lot of people don't read it before they talk to you, you know, so it was very nice. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, no problem. So just to start, I'm wondering if you could just take us through your career path and, you know, how you got your start and how you ended up here. Um, yeah, that's one of those questions you don't know where to start, right? right. Um, but I got into journalism just because when you're a teenager, you can't think of anything else better to do. I, w- I remember sitting with my mom and she was saying when I was in high school and trying to figure out where to go to college. And she'd say, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. Well, do you want to try this? No. What about that? No. What about and She'd say, what about um, journalism? And I'd say, well, That'd be okay because I was working for the student newspaper and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you just sort of back into it. Um, um, both of my parents are immigrants from Europe. My dad's from Denmark. My mom's from Scotland. I was almost the first person from either side of the family to go to college. So it, everything was just a mystery figure, trying to figure out how to navigate college and what, what to do with your life and mm-hmm. that whole process sort of. So I applied to uh, Northwestern University, which was one of the top journalism schools. I think I got in because at the time we were living in Mobile, Alabama. And back then I might've been the only person applying to Northwestern from Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> so, and then um, did all the internships and everything in college, worked for the student newspaper, I was doing a lot of sports because that's what I liked. Um, and if I was going to do something for free, I might as well do something I liked. So um, while I was at Northwestern, the football team, which was in the Big Ten Conference, um, they lost every game from the second week of my freshman year until midway through my senior year. They set the all-time record for losing in wow. NCAA football. They were the worst team in the history of football. <laughs> And I was covering the team, so that that um, so people got to see what I was doing a lot more than if they won a couple of games, you know. <laughs> so, in a strange way, that I, I hate to say it, but 
their misery helped me. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I had an internship with the Boston Globe, um, and um, there was another intern there. She was a news intern. Her name was Jackie McMullen. Uh, we hit it off. We became best friends that summer. Uh, the Globe hired us both um, after the internship. I had another year of college to go, but um, so that was my first job. Um, working for the Globe. Um, first thing they had me cover was uh, Boston College. So this is, we're talking way back, you know, this is like 1983. So they put me on to covering Boston College football and Doug Flutie was the quarterback. So my first two years on the job were covering Doug Flutie's final two years and he won the Heisman Trophy and it was a big story. And, and um uh, from there, um, at the end of the 80s, um, a new newspaper was being started up by Frank DeFord, who was the biggest sports writer in America. The newspaper was called the National Sports Daily. And this is before the internet existed. And um, um, the idea was uh, to, to put a national newspaper out that would be available in every city. So they went around and hired all these sports writers from around the country to work for it. It lasted 17 months, lost all this money. It was, uh, it was a spectacular disaster. People really liked it, but it lost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, so now I was at a job, early 90s. I uh, moved to Europe um, to work for the International Herald Tribune. They were looking for a sports writer to live in Europe. So I lived for three years in Paris, three years in London. I, I married my girlfriend from Winthrop, Mass. We moved over. We had our kids over there. My daughter was born in Paris. My son was born in London. Wow. Um, I traveled all over the world writing about sports. Could go wherever I wanted, write whatever I wanted. It's the greatest job ever. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of the 90s, um, uh, ESPN was starting the magazine. So they offered me a job. They wanted me to move back and work for them. Sports Illustrated hired me basically to keep me from working for them. So I, I took the job with Sports Illustrated, moved back here. You can live, when you work for Sports Illustrated back then, you can live wherever you wanted. So I lived in Boston, which is where I'd been before and where my wife is from. Mm -hmm. uh, so we moved to Swampscott. Uh, I was with uh, Sports Illustrated for 16 years, most of it covering the NBA. And I, it was while I was working for Sports Illustrated that I started on this on this book. So I wish I could say that was the short answer to your question, <laughs> but that's what happened. No, it's all good information. Um, and I think uh, your focus is mostly on basketball. Um, why? Um, well, uh, what happened was with this particular thing, um, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt which has a, a big office in Boston, their, one of their editors, Susan Canavan, called me up. And I'd met her before, but she called me up around 20, early 2011 and said, uh, would you be interested in writing a book for us? Um, we'd like to have a book on LeBron James and um, the uh, controversy that he's been involved in because the, the book revolves around this, that, that, in the summer of 2010, when LeBron was in his mid-20s and he's a big star, but he hasn't won a championship, he 
he went on television. He, he created a TV, live TV special for himself in which he would announce where he was going to go play. And that's when he went on TV and said, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach to play for the Miami Heat. And he had been seen as the next Michael Jordan before this whole fiasco. And it came off so badly, such a, an act of entitlement um, that people hated him. He became the most hated athlete in America all of a sudden that year. And, and uh, so Hope Mifflin, they wanted a book on that. So I agreed to do it. So I started, um, started working on that uh, for them while I was covering the NBA for Sports Illustrated. And I've been doing the NBA for Sports Illustrated for the previous decade. So uh, that had become my specialty. Before that, I'd, I'd done every kind of sport all around the world, obviously. And um, this, this was, uh, but for the, for that decade leading up to the book, I'd, I'd been solely an MBA person, um, which was good. I, I liked covering the NBA. If I had to cover one league, that would be the one I would want to do. Uh, when I was with the globe in the eighties, um, they used to put me onto the Celtics, you know, as their third or fourth or fifth guy covering the Celtics. Uh, and so I, I got to, cover all three of the magic Johnson, Larry bird finals, which are the pinnacle of that sport. So um, I always liked the NBA. I did a lot of basketball while I lived in Europe, which gave me good perspective, which really helped play into the way I, I approached doing this book. Hmm. Yeah. So what's it like for people that don't know, like me um, to be at those games or, you know, at the bigger games, do you attend them now, or is it mostly something you do remotely in terms of covering? Well, back then, um, you know, it's changed a lot. Um, when I, I just used to take it for granted in the eighties and the nineties and even the early two thousands, mm -hmm. if I would go to a game, I'd be sitting courtside. So I would have the best seat in the house working for, whichever place I was working for, whether it was the Globe or the National or Sports Illustrated, um, you'd, you'd have the seat that is no longer available to us because those seats are so expensive now. They sell them for thousands and thousands of dollars per game. But um, so th this was something you kind of learn uh, the hard way. You know, um, I remember the first time I, I was sent to cover the Celtics. Um, I was probably 23 years old and I was going to be writing the game story and I was just so nervous. <laughs> and <clears throat> I remember Dan Shaughnessy, who's still with the globe telling me how to do it, go into the locker room before the game, go in the Celtics locker room. Cause you have to write a notebook before the game starts. And he recommended I try talking to Robert Parrish about something that was going on at the time. And I remember going in to talk to Robert Parrish. He was the center of the Celtics and he was just, uh, he could see how nervous I was. He was just so uh, kind. <laughs> and I could see him laughing at how nervous I was and everything, but he answered my questions for me and helped me out. And, and I remember just having no clue on how to do this. Uh, I was used to watch hundreds, thousands of games. Um, but how do you actually break it down and turn it into a story, which is often completely different from what you saw in mm -hmm. a way. It's a different kind of, you tell a different kind of story than the story that you saw playing out on the court. Right. And, and I didn't know how to do that. Um, but basically 
when when you do cover games you you go you go there um the locker rooms are open before the game uh it's no longer valid during this pandemic but you know you, you go in and and try to find the people you need to talk to to help you with the stories you're working on before the game coaches are available before the game <clears throat> talk to them in the hallway outside the locker room usually <laughs> and you go um Go have dinner. They have a press room. They'll serve you dinner before. Pay five bucks for it. Um, then go out to the court. Uh, set up your laptop. Um, uh, take notes in your laptop. Write some stuff during the time <clears throat> during the timeouts and <clears throat> times in between the game. During the game, you figure out what you want to write about. Figure out what the story is. By the time the game ends, you want to have a strategy on what you're going to talk to people about. And I, I really appreciate you asking me this question. No one's ever asked me before. Um, mm -hmm. After the, you figure out your strategy, I'm going to talk to, back then when I would have been covering the Celtics a lot, let's say I would have said, I want to talk to Doc Rivers, uh, Paul Pierce, uh, Rajon Rondo for a certain story I'm doing. Then I'll go across the hallway to the visitor's locker room, see what LeBron James has to say about it, um, get something from the opposing coach. You have to get all this done quickly because the players, the coaches are only available for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's often crowded around them. You have to make sure you get your question in to cover what you need. Um, then you go back and sit down to write it and then write it really fast. <laughs> um, and I, I used to listen to really loud music at times when I didn't have energy to try to like thump me awake. And it was funny. I read, I read years ago, Stephen King, the, the author, listens to heavy metal music in his office up in Maine when <laughs> he writes. And yeah, I, I'm not a house music kind of person, but I, listen, I used to listen to house music to try to get me going. It's probably so, late, late in the night at that point. Yeah, especially during the playoffs. Like if you're at an NBA Finals game, the game starts at, after nine o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. um, and back then at Sports Illustrated, Working for our, our website, si.com, they needed to have everything in by 2 a.m. because um, they were going to go home. <laughs> so you don't want to keep them staying late. So if a game started, the final game started at, after 9 p.m., maybe it ends at midnight. And you, now, so from midnight until 2, you have to go talk to everybody get your thoughts together and write a thousand words. Um, wow. Yeah. So, but if you've been doing it a long time, it's not overwhelming, but you just know you're going to have to really, really work hard at it and, and sort of approach it the way the players approach a game. You have to be really up, you have to be really ready, positive, ambitious, all of that. You have to have all good feelings going for you. You can't, can't be negative about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, I can imagine that's a really intense, both for you and for the players after, you know, doing this big physical activity for hours and then having to, you know, put their own thoughts together. You know, I've always wondered about that. It's a great question. I've always wondered about that with players, how they, if they're really into something and then just like that, snap of the fingers, they need to turn it off and be able to step back and put it into perspective and a lot of times I find myself thinking they're so much better at it than I would be. Mm. But again, they've been doing it a long time. And if you're a player in the NBA, 
that means you were probably a great player going back to when you were eight years old <laughs> and you, you just get used to the attention. You get used to people asking you questions. You get used to being held accountable to good behavior, behaving well in the public. Okay. Um, so I, I think that's part of it. Um, you know, what's interesting that if you think about the differences between the sports, the NFL players, the NFL is like a, a militaristic kind of league and they have a code to the way they are. It's very violent and you play hurt and mm -hmm. play under this kind of military guise. Um, baseball, the role models for baseball players, there aren't a lot of guys that went to college in baseball. Um, you know, there's a lot of signing with a base pro baseball team straight out of high school. And so who are your role models? But if you're an NBA player, if you want to be a great NBA player, who do you look up to? Guys like LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, they grew up looking to Michael Jordan as their example. And they wanted to be like him. You always picture him wearing a suit and a tie and being very well-spoken in his TV interviews or after a game and carrying himself in a very high-minded kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's how a lot of the basketball players uh, want to be. Larry Bird came to the Celtics and um, was called the hick from French lick. He, he didn't, he, he was rough around the edges, but somebody said to me that once that he thought Larry Bird came in the NBA and said, I want to be like Julius Irving who carried him as a star and he wanted to, Julie Serving had a lot in common with Michael Jordan and the way he carried himself. And so I just think it's sort of each generation in the NBA, they grow up wanting to be like Michael Jordan or Julia Serving or somebody that carries themselves really well. They have, they have great role models in the NBA. Mm. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of a question that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I thought it was interesting in your book, now sort of like moving into talking about your book a little bit. You talk about the different generations of basketball stars that everybody even I who don't follow the sport know and how this the generation that was coming up that's about you know that focuses on this book like LeBron James and Kobe Bryant um had a sense of sort of entitlement um what do you think that's changed you know now that we're 10 years out from that from that situation it's like who who what are the characteristics of the big players right now would you say yeah it's, it's a it's you know, you're making me think, Julie, that when you think about um, um, the impact, just, just to try to explain where I'm coming from, the impact that the Great Depression had on people that lived through it or grew up in it um, and how it, it formed them, you know, they, they, they were focused on saving their money and preparing for disasters and not being able to count on the future and all that kind of stuff. Well, David Stern, who was the commissioner of the NBA forever and ever, uh, and took over as commissioner uh, basically the same time Michael Jordan came into the league, but had been around the NBA for years before that. David Stern was kind of like a Depression-era um, baby in terms of the NBA. When David Stern came to the NBA, the NBA was a struggling league. In the 1970s, there was talk that it was going to go out of business. Mm -hmm. uh, there were predictions that it could never do well because there were too many black players and the racist elements in America would never go for a league of black stars. 
Um, so he 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 came into the NBA and he he built his career in the NBA with this kind of depression era outlook that look we're just trying to stay alive and let's try to build something here. Um, what the NBA has become, he never could have imagined. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's beyond him. What it has become is now taken for granted as the reality by all these players who knew nothing about the NBA's past, knew nothing about all that it almost went out of business in the seventies. Michael Jordan knew all about that. Michael Jordan, when he came into the NBA, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like the league he helped turn into. So I think even he looks at this generation of players and sees the entitlement and, and um, sees that they take for granted what I had to earn. I, I would think that's how he looks at them. Um, for this new generation of players, I think it's very liberating that they don't have, they don't, they can't imagine the time when the NBA is going to be anything less than what it is right now, mm-hmm. which is a, a league that, you know, before the pandemic was going to be earning $9 billion worldwide and is popular in every country around the world. Games are shown everywhere. The players are known everywhere. Again, none of that ha- existed way back when. So they they take all of that for granted. Um, what How they are going to react to this particular time in which we find ourselves now is going to be really interesting to me. Um, this is the biggest crisis that all of the that all of us are facing in all sorts of ways, and it's no different for sports. Um, these These leagues that owe billions of dollars in salaries and have billions of dollars of responsibilities with TV networks. They're unable to meet any of those responsibilities right now. They can't play. Mm-hmm. And when are they going to be able to play? And when they do play, are there going to be fans at the games? And what, what, what's the money going to be like? And are people going to need sports? They're going to want sports as much coming out of this pandemic down the road mm-hmm. as they do now. This is a real crisis. And it's going to require some leadership from everybody in sports and it's going to be interesting to, for me to see, for all of us to see how these, these basketball players who just came in ex- expecting, okay, if I'm a great player, I know I'm going to make $30 million a year. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just what comes with it. How are they going to react? You know, this is their depression moment. Right. Yeah, I think one thing that really surprised me was the amount of money that, I mean, everybody knows that sports players make a, a ton of money, but... Um, the added endorsement deals that they get on top of that were pretty astounding to hear about, I think, or to read about in your book. Yeah. You know, as much money as they make on the court, the great ones make multiples of that off it. So, um, and Michael Jordan has made over a billion dollars now uh, from his basketball career, but all of the, all of the stuff that he's been able to build off the court, but it's all from basketball. Mm-hmm. So and LeBron James, uh, if he's making say thirty million on the court, he's making two two times maybe more of that off the court mm-hmm. from his endorsements. Kobe Bryant, not quite as much back in his time, but similar. So yeah, 
the amount of money is unbelievable. And that's all part of this marketplace that's now being threatened by the pandemic. Right. So to go back to your book a little bit, what was the research process like for, for writing it? I know you know that somebody came to you with the idea, but was it already something you were thinking about at the time or did you, did you have to give it more thought when, when they brought it to you? You know, this was really hard because um, they wanted, they wanted a, a book about a guy who was in transition. So LeBron James um, had gone from this guy who was seen as a savior for the NBA who was uh, now being regarded as a villain. And uh, his change in status was casting the shadow on the whole league. Mm -hmm. When Michael Jordan was really popular and was winning championships, the NBA looked better because of Michael Jordan. The same thing, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, they, they, did the, they illuminated the league. And, and now LeBron was casting a shadow on the league as the best player. Um, was he going to be a villain for his whole life? Um, if he was, then why are we even bothering to write a book about him? Because no one's going to buy a book about someone they hate. <laughs> so, so I was, I was in this position of trying to report a story without knowing what the outcome was, you know, the beginning, middle and end. I didn't know what the end was. Uh, and I was just in the middle of it. And so I had hoped to give them the book. They, they asked me in 2011 to do it and they wanted it by 2012. <clears throat> and I, I fully expected to give it to them by then, but I couldn't because I didn't know what I was writing to. I didn't know what the outcome was. I didn't know how, to, how it was going to end. And I wanted it to end in a way that it would hold up, that it would be timeless. You don't want to write a book that's got a shelf life that, that's very short after it comes out. Mm -hmm. uh, because what if I write a book that, that says this guy's a villain and makes it look like he's always going to be a villain. Um, and then all of a sudden he's a hero <laughs> or people love him again. Well, it was a waste of time. Mm -hmm. So I ended up needing years of, um, I had to wait it out basically. And I had to wait it out until LeBron moved back to Cleveland and then won a championship. And when he won the championship finally with Cleveland, uh, a few years later, I said to myself, okay, now we can go forward with this. Now I know what the ending is. Um, as far as the reporting, I just kept doing the same kind of reporting I, I was doing at the time for Sports Illustrated, except um, whenever I thought I found a character that, that would be um, important to the book, I would try to arrange, I would arrange an interview with that person and tell them it's for the book, for this book I'm doing. And it would be a lot more in depth than what I was usually doing. Um, and so I would set up those things along the way, um, which, which really worked out well because I was traveling a lot for Sports Illustrated. And so I, I would just make extra time to make sure I could talk to this person if I happened to be in their city or if they were coming to Boston, I'd set something up. Uh, to talk to them when they were here. Um, but yeah, it, it worked very well with the job I was doing at the time. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about those those interviews. I'm sure they were pretty extensive because the there's so many details about each of the, um, you know, quote unquote characters in the book. Did you get any feedback from those people that, that were involved with it? Did they read it? Yeah, um, Doc, I, I haven't 
talked a lot to them since. Um, Doc Rivers told me he liked it very much, and he has bought the book and sent it to people, to other coaches. Um, it's very much a coach's book because of the influence of uh, Doc Rivers on it and also Pat Riley, who was running the Miami Heat. Pat Riley is one of the great coaches in the history of the NBA. He was the Lakers coach, Los Angeles Lakers coach in the 1980s. So he was Magic Johnson's coach. Um, and towards the end of this, it, it wasn't until after LeBron won his championship in Cleveland, I finally convinced Pat Riley to talk to me. And it went from zero to 60. I wasn't able to get him to talk to me at all. <clears throat> all of a sudden, he was, he, he, he was really opening up to me. And we, we spoke for nine hours for the book, um, which was a lot. And I got a lot out of it. So um, I know he liked it. I know, I know Dirk Nowitzki liked it. He, he asked for some extra copies to share with his family. Um, and, it, you know, it, it was well-received from, from people in my business. Um, um, I, think, I think they could see that how much work went into it. There, there, is, um, there is a lot of detail. Um, I, I felt personally that I'd made this very extensive investment in writing about basketball throughout my career. And I really wanted to uh, do the best I could to do, to come up with something lasting from that. I want, I didn't want it to just all be in vain kind of, I wanted to have a something that would endure just a little bit. I don't know if this does, but that that was the goal. And so that that's why I put so much into it. Mm. Also, I found the book to be extremely descriptive. And even I could, you know, as somebody who doesn't know much about it, could follow exactly what was going on. But I'm sure that also people who are fans of basketball, you know, tried and true, would get a lot out of the book, obviously. Um, was it difficult to balance between writing for an audience that doesn't know who might pick this up just out of curiosity or somebody who's been involved with this for, for decades as, as you have? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, this is where my time in Europe really, really helped me. Um, when I went to work for the international Herald Tribune um, in my early thirties, um, it was the world's largest newspaper. It was based in Paris um, and went to literally every country around the world, six days a week. It's written in English. It was co-owned by the New York Times and Washington Post. So basically that newspaper would draw the best stories out of the Times and the Post every day. It would condense them. And then they would hire a few people like me to fill in the cracks of things that weren't being covered by the New York Times and Washington Post. So they had me write about sports around the world. They had um, one of, they had Susie Menkes, one of the top fashion writers in the world. She, she was with the International Herald Tribune to cover the fashion industry from Paris. Um, that, those kinds of people. So there are only a few of us as writers, reporters, columnists, whatever, working in Paris for them. And when I came over, the editor, his name was John Vinegar. He was a legend with the New York Times, legendary writer with the New York Times. 
And he explained to me the, the point of view of writing for the world's largest newspaper. He, he said, you have to write for everybody. So you have to write, uh, if I go to write a sports story, I have to write it so that um, people who know everything about it are happy with it. And the people who know nothing about it will still want to read it and get something out of it. So you had to, it had to truly be universal. So if I was covering a rugby match in England and I didn't know anything about rugby, but I had to write about it. <laughs> I had to write so that the English or the French would say, yeah, okay, I'm glad I read this. But then I don't know, someone in Indonesia who didn't know anything about rugby would still find the human element in it and mm-hmm. be able to get something out of it. So by describing what goes on in a game, but describing it in real world terms as if it's something happening in your kitchen or someone running down the street um, so that everyone can relate to it. That, that's one way to do it. And then also just looking for uh, the spiritual side of everything. Why this, what drives people to do what they do? How do they react to triumph? How do they react to incredible disappointment? Um, uh, uh, if, if last time they were in a, a championship game, they blew it. How did they, how did they overcome those memories to win it next time? Those kinds of stories, yeah, you focused on those and that, that was the same kind of point of view I tried to bring to this book. Mm-hmm. I think it worked. How is the process of writing a, a full book different from the type of writing that you usually do? Um, for most of my career, I was the long, they call it long form now. Um, they used to call them takeouts back then. So um, they had me writing the long stories for as long as I can remember. When I was 25, um, the Globe sent me down to uh, a small town in Pennsylvania to write a story about um, these two high school football players who were twins and they were the running backs. One was the tailback, one was the fullback and they won the state championship, the first ever state championship for their town. And then they were on a recruiting trip after the season. And one of them, they got into a car accident and one of them was killed. It was a terrible, tragic story. And so they had me write that story and um, it ran in the Boston globe at 6,000 words, which meant it, it was on the front page of the sports section. And when you opened up the, the paper, it took up two full pages of type. Um, but it won, the, it won the national award for the best sports story of the year. Um, and that was when I was 25. So that was what I was always hired to do. At the Herald Tribune, they didn't run the long stories. They didn't have room for them. But Sports Illustrated, they did. And at the National Sports Daily, that's what I did. Uh, so I was sort of on that track and then I started doing the book and I realized I still had no idea (laughs) as much as I thought I knew about writing long, Mm -hmm. I still had no idea on how to do it. Um, and I just had to keep writing and rewriting and rewriting and it didn't make it any better that I didn't know what the ending was going to be. And so I, I, if I got, if, if I was being paid per word, for this book, for every word I typed uh, while trying to write this thing, you know, it's way, way, way less than one one penny per word. It's 
I just kept writing and writing and writing. It was it was harrowing, um, and it's part of why right now I'm of no mind to write another book at the moment. Right. <laughs> yeah. Even the chapters were kind of articles in them or like long form articles in themselves. Was that intentional? I don't know if that was. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a whole story that leads up to the the final games, but. Um, was it intentional that each of the chapters was sort of a different, different like main character or? Of that yeah, it's probably, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great observation. It's probably because that's how I've been geared to think of it. But I think also because um, each of the, the subjects in, in the basketball world is, um, is really important, you know, for, for basketball fans, for people who love the sport. So Isaiah Thomas, the, the old Isaiah Thomas from the Detroit Pistons um, in the 1980s, like he opened up to me and told me stories of his childhood that he'd never shared before. And then uh, seeing, seeing things from his perspective helped give you a better understanding of why LeBron James was acting the way he was acting. Um, so that, the, that that's probably why I, I I structured it that way. Another one was with Joey Crawford, who was the NBA's biggest referee at the time, the most controversial referee, and being able to um, um, have a lot of time with him and have him break down an NBA Finals game for me, which he'd never done before, which the league had never allowed to have happen before. They usually don't let you talk to the referees. Um, that was worthy of its own chapter. And again, it gave you more insight into the, the larger story. Mm-hmm. So going back to something you just briefly touched on um, a little while ago, just going into our current pandemic, how has your job changed as a result of it? Well, um, right now, actually, I'm not, I'm not uh, writing about sports uh, so much. Um, mm-hmm. I may get back into it, but I'm working at Northeastern University right now. Oh. Um, as a, as a writer, they, they uh, have a news service at Northeastern and actually it's doing really well. It's uh, run by a guy, David Filipov, who's won a couple of Pulitzer Prizes with the Boston Globe and he was the Moscow bureau chief for the Washington Post. He's from Boston. He quit the Post, moved back home. He's running this news site at Northeastern and um, it's, it's done so well. Um, that it was a, a, a semifinalist or a finalist in the Webby recent Webby Awards oh, wow. up there with the Wall Street Journal and uh, other places, um, other mainstream places. So I'm one of their writers, um, and I write about sports sometimes, but I write a lot that isn't about sports, uh, just larger issues um, about the pandemic, whatever whatever's going on. And I really enjoyed that. It's been a, it's been a real nice change of pace after so many years of um, writing about sports as I, as I watch my former colleagues in sports deal with this pandemic. Um, it makes me all the more relieved that I'm not at this very moment doing right. what they do because there's just nothing for them to do. And so there's Right now, there's a whole lot of coverage of the way things used to be. Who was the greatest team of all time? This happened to me so-and-so, such-and-such time ago. Um, 
because there's no news coming out of the leagues, out of out of sports right now. Everyone's just waiting for it to start up again. Um, I find myself still trying to think of uh, a way to continue to write about sports in my own terms. Um, and we'll see if I can come up with something. And if I can't, uh, if, even if I did, I would do it in conjunction with what I'm doing now at Northeastern because um, I'm very happy with what I'm doing right now. It's been, it's been a really welcome change of pace for me. That's great. I'm sure you're still a fan of basketball. Well, yeah, I, I watch everything. And, yeah, not just basketball. I, yeah, I'm <clears> – you know, I'm one of these – it can be hard to watch a game with me because I'll uh, – <laughs> I'll be watching a game with my wife, Maureen, and I'll pause the game and tell her a story about this guy or that guy. Or This is not what you think. This guy is really not a good guy at all, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I'm always, I'm always interrupting to, to give backstories to things. So, yeah, I'm still, still very much into it. Mm. So what do you see in terms of professional basketball in the coming I don't know, weeks or months or, or even next season. Do you, do you have any feelings about that? Or, Well, I'm very skeptical that they're going to play again um, this, uh, this summer. They're hoping to be able to resume their season in some form and to be able to have a championship. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're trying to predict a future that's unpredictable. Mm-hmm. So all these predictions of the NBA coming back, you know, in say in June to play again and have their playoffs throughout the summer, that's based on uh, on things improving. Um, but the fact is, we, as as you and I are talking right now, we have no idea really where the pandemic is because we just aren't testing in our country. Our 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 government has not come up with tests for us the greatest country in the world and we can't focus on putting out millions and millions of simple tests that that would enable us to know where we stand with the virus and until we have the test how can anybody imagine being able to put a, a business like the nba back on the stage um if things get worse now that we're opening back up again and there's still a dearth of tests, how are people going to feel if the NBA is gobbling up all these tests so that they can play basketball games? I, I just, I just think there are so many questions. I hope it comes back. I can see a way that it would come back, but I don't believe anybody that tells me it is going to come back. I, I just, and I will believe it when I see it. And if it does come back, that is awesome. That means we're doing better. We've, we're on top of this to the extent that we can allow a league like the NBA to have the tests it needs and the resources it needs to come back. That would be amazing. Mm-hmm. But I just find myself being too skeptical to, to imagine that it, that it will be so right now. Mm. Yeah, I think probably the most difficult part of this is the unknown. And if yeah. there are predictions like that, I always find myself asking, oh, how, how do they know? <laughs> and what, yeah. what do they think? Um, you know, you know, what do they know that we don't know? So um, I guess, yeah, we can be hopeful, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I, I think what they're doing is they are making plans that are written in very soft pencil. 
and they can be put into effect if things improve or things slow down. But it's not like they have control over their own future right now. They just don't. They're at the mercy of larger forces. And so if those larger forces enable them to play again, awesome. I hope it happens. But I don't think they are plan they are they they are hoping to resume the season, but I do not think they're planning to because they cannot make such plans. It's impossible for them to make them. Um so just as a final question, usually on the podcast I'll interview other librarians about just anything that they're either reading or watching for, for enjoyment. Um are you reading anything that you're enjoying right now? Or do you have time to read? I know you're still working pretty hard, but yeah, so um, um, right now, working at Northeastern, um, I get free tuition, free classes. So I'm, I'm uh, working towards a master's, <laughs> which wow. will enable me to teach. Um, and, and hopefully I'll be graduating uh, a year from now. But uh, right now, one of the classes I'm taking is... Uh, Basically, it's the fundamentals of art, and it's helping. My major is in uh, um, digital communications, and um, this is providing me a, a foundation on art and how art's used for the internet. But it's the fundamentals of art. I have to write, at my age, I have to write a term paper. <laughs> <laughs> and so I chose uh, Leonardo da Vinci as my subject because I was woefully versed on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm reading um, Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Leonardo, and it's, I just love it. It's fascinating. It's, and it makes me want to read his other biographies. Um, I don't know how, interest I am, how interested I am in reading about Steve Jobs, but, but um, this is just beautiful. And um, he's an amazing guy, um, very much a self-made man. Mm. Um, probably did as well as he did because he did not have a formal education. Everything he learned, he learned on his own. And so he, he made his own way forward and it's, yeah, I'm, I'm really liking it. So I recommend that totally. Yeah. I'm sure people, I'm sure we have it at the library. So. Yeah. What are you reading? Well, it just finished your book. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but also I have Elizabeth Gilbert, who is the woman who wrote, Eat, Pray, Love, and um, City of Girls. She's a she's got some nonfiction, some fiction. She wrote a book that I'm still working my way into. It's called um, The Signature of All Things. So try that out next. Do you read two or three books at a time, or do you just stick to one? I used to do a lot more. Now I've, with limited time, I can really only focus on one at a, one at a time. But yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for talking to me. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but yeah, I learned a lot about basketball and I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, Julie, I really appreciate this. Uh, it was great talking to you. Thank you for reading the book. Oh, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of interviewers don't have time to read, read it and you can really tell the difference mm-hmm. when you're talking to them. So thank you. It's been a real pleasure uh, doing this with you. Thanks very much. Yeah, excellent. Yeah.